Welcome, welcome, welcome. I am really excited to uh, bring on a special guest. And let me just get out of this. Apologies here. So thank you all for tuning in. We are doing a We the People series with a very special guest, David Edwards, who I had an opportunity to meet um, because I actually engaged with him to set up a PMA and a 508. And I know this has been a hot topic, David. I'd love to first start and have um, you introduce yourself because I know there's a lot of questions around this type of business. And this is part of the new economy that we're sort of laying out as many of us begin to realize that there's a different way. And this PMA, this private membership association is part of that different way, as well as the 508 um, ministry church structure. And so there's a complete buzz right now. A lot of people are getting really excited. But what I realized in talking to you is that this is something that's actually been around for quite some time. And one of the questions that I want to dive into after you introduce yourself is, how come none of us knew about this? So can you just give people a little brief bio of your background, how you came to this, and, um, and then we'll dive more into the nitty gritty of the conversation. Okay, before I do that, let me start by uh, wishing everybody a happy 245th anniversary of our Independence Day. Uh, most people have the common belief that July 4th is uh, our Independence Day. But, um, however, that's actually the day that the public declaration was made. July 2nd is actually when Continental Congress voted to declare our independence. So, so uh, happy Independence funny. Day, everybody. But, um, now, on, I've tried for a very long time to make sure that um, this is never made about me. It's uh, it's about the message and the information that gets out there, um, or that's put out there. But people also have a need to know a little bit about who's delivering the message. But um, I just don't want the message to get lost. But um, the PMA structure, the the whole private domain, the protections of the private domain, are a new concept to a lot of people. But um, but it's nothing new. The uh, separation of the domains between public and private has always been there, but um, we've got long settled case rulings going back to uh, 1803, but uh, separating the domains and the protections thereof. We use the words public domain and private domain because that's what the courts have historically used, but, um, but it's actually just a separation of the jurisdictions, the jurisdiction of public law and the jurisdictions that the people retain for themselves but um and that's that's the basic concept that people need to wrap their minds around now i started in law a little over 36 years ago and i had the um, opportunity and honor to be mentored by a man who at the time was the chief judge for the federal court systems for the southern district of ohio and a very highly respected law school professor and he kind of changed the course of uh of what i intended to do but um but to make a long story short i've been in law for 36 years um i am not a licensed attorney if i were i wouldn't be able to do a lot of the things that i do now i would have restrictions imposed um by my public oath of office but um 
if I had to give yeah, it a title. Was, just to interrupt you for a minute, David, and I know that you've made this not about you and about the message, but I think that was really important when you shared that with me that um, you taking an oath to do law would have circumvented you from doing this work, which you've been doing for decades. Um, so I think that's a, a really important point. Right. We have some uh, some conflict that um, that I've been hearing lately with some of the more constitutionally minded attorneys. You got to keep in mind that um, there are two law encyclopedias that pretty much govern our system of law. Uh, both of them declare that uh, an, a, a licensed attorney's first obligation is to the court because they're an officer of the court. And this is the way I was taught way back then. Their second obligation is to public law, and their third obligation is to their client. Therefore, if I were a licensed attorney and I were drafting documents to take our people out of the jurisdiction of the courts and out of the jurisdiction of public law, it would be a violation of my oath of office. Therefore, um, almost 40 years ago, I had to make the, or 30, 36, 37 years ago, I had to make the decision but um, not to become licensed by any uh, governing board in any state or become a member of the bar. But um, hopefully we're going to see a lot of that changing with some of the more constitutionally minded attorneys that are, um, that are coming forward now. But I've, I've been doing this. Um, I've been studying law for over 36 years. And in my case, that's uh, never ending. But um, I've been doing what I do now specifically for, a little over 26 years, focusing on helping people to learn the things that are no longer taught. Since I'm not a licensed attorney, if I had to give myself a title, I would I would consider myself more of a consultant. Um, I teach people the things that are are no longer taught and help them to properly draft their documentation to keep their lives and their business as a matter of a private contractual obligation between them and the members of their PMAs. You have to keep in mind that law says, and this law is actually older than this country and it's declared in the Constitution, but it says no state can pass any law that impairs the obligation of contract. But um, So we're creating that private contractual relationship within our PMAs um, between us and our members but the important thing is that we leave the statutory compliant language out of our contracts and out of our um, our founding documents. And when I talk about statutory, I want to interject just because you you've been living this for so long, and I want to break it down. And that first conversation I had with you, I learned a, a lot in just a few minutes. And I, and one of the things that I, I like to do is translate it for like. The, the, the typical person. Now, I'm an entrepreneur, so I have a, a little bit of grasp of that knowledge, but let's just dive into the PMA, Private Membership Association, exactly what it is, because you're talking a lot about this private contractual agreement. And I think this is a new, not even a new language, but a new concept for a lot of people. But yet there have been many, um, many private membership associations. And, and was that the beginning? When did we split off from doing PMAs and when did they actually first start? Um, private associations that um, are nothing new, but um, they've we we see and hear and deal with um, private associations and private organizations all the time, and we don't even realize it. But um, you've got the uh, NAACP, the uh, Bar Association, um, the DNC, the GOP—they're all private. 
um, and the distinction between the private and public has kind of got lost with uh, when people started being educated in a manner to believe that public law applies to all situations. Public law does not apply to um, your private contractual relationships or within your private associations. Now there is um, a limit to uh, to the protections, but it's pretty extreme, and we can go into that here in just a couple of minutes. But um, but the we have the ability to keep our private lives and our private business private. But um, and everything that I teach used to be common knowledge. Um, everybody knew that there were limits to government and limits to uh, public law governance, but we're just not taught that way anymore. Um, there used to be a requirement in every high school uh, across the country to have civics before you could graduate high school. Well, classes like civics taught the people too much about the limits of government. So those have been systematically removed from high schools across the country and replaced with programs like social studies or government and government history. The majority of the people that I talk to today um, never had civics classes. Uh, most of them had social studies. Yep. But, um, and they've lost so much in the education. <laughs> um, they've lost so much in the education um, that used to be common. The, um, we've lost sight of the things that everybody used to know. Now, just because we're not taught those things anymore doesn't invalidate them. But um, law has not changed when it comes to the separation and the protections of the uh, of the private domain or the separate jurisdictions. When we start talking about case law, uh, we can go back to the early 1800s, but one of my favorite cases in case law history is Hale versus Hinkle from 1906. Now, if you go looking at the, the text of that case decision, um, it's going to be kind of confusing at first because it actually, to start with, it actually had nothing to do with the protections of the separation of the domains. But that's where the conversations led within the courts. And back then, the courts didn't guard their wording as much as they do now. But um, so within the, the text of that decision, it specifically says that no citizen owes any duty or obligation to the state or to his neighbor to disclose his private business. Well, that still stands today. There's no other case that's been um, cited in the history of uh, of case law more than Hale versus Hinkle. But um, those decisions still stand. But um, there are literally hundreds and hundreds of court decisions since then that uh, have relied upon and reinforced um, the protections of Hale versus Hinkle. We're taught that. If we want to involve ourselves in business, but, um, we need to either form a corporation or an LLC or um, ask for permission by getting a business license. Okay, First, you have to understand that the definition of license is written permission to do something that would otherwise be illegal. If we're going to ask for permission, then we're going to be required to comply with the terms under which that permission is granted. So we need to learn that we, we don't have to ask permission. We only have to have that permission if we're going to do business as a matter of uh, public governance and public law. 
But um, otherwise, we should be keeping our, our business private private. And we've been indoctrinated, just like you said, that the change in the schools from civics to social studies. I mean, this is a a planned, uh, you know, educational program that we've been on. And we've all not, I, we've, you know, indoctrinated to not ask questions and not to, to think this way. So it's a change in thinking really outside the box. I don't see any way that that could have effectively been done if they had tried to just um, implement it all all at one time. Too many people would have been in opposition to what was coming. So it's been a process, but um, and this is exactly what I refer to when we when we start talking about the dumbing down of America. It was a process to remove this education from our public schools, but um, and our system of public education. Those yeah. that are in public office that um, are very much aware of the fact that you can change the thinking of an entire nation within just a couple of generations. And we've, we've seen that happen here. It was a matter of removing information like this. It's just not commonly taught anymore. But um, so people don't know the options are available because they're not taught that way. But um, government didn't have didn't have the need to um, to actually try and obstruct or interfere th with those protections. All they had to do was stop teaching it, stop making people know that the, the protections are there and they've always been there. I get people almost every day that are asking about the PMA structure that, um, and they think this is a new concept. It's not something new. It's just not something you're taught anymore. Our, our protections have always been there. We, all, we have always had the ability to act in different capacities. You can act in the capacity of a public person or a private person or uh, a private member at, at any time you choose. And right now, without even realizing it, you, you typically change those hats um, several times any day, any, uh, every day anyway. But, um, so you need, to, you need to understand basically that you have the ability to act in those different capacities at any time. So when you're properly founding uh, your PMAs, but, um, your, your members are converting their capacity from a public person to a private member. That's what creates that private contractual um, obligation to keep your business private and within your uh, within the confines of your own PMA or uh, ministry um, or private health association, private education association, um, whichever way you decide to structure it. Um, David, can we hop into that? I, like, so, you know, you, we had to do ours. I just, I got, I printed my docs, Haven Earth PMA and the Haven Earth uh, ministry, which was the 508. Is this a good time to kind of go into the difference between the two? Because one thing that you said to me, when we were talking about the church structure and there's a lot of people that are pivoting um, in a lot of ways um, with their businesses, but also looking to, um, you know, put their investment into land and looking to relocate. And so I think the 508 in particular for us that are looking to build community and land was, was um, really relevant. Maybe that's not for everyone, but if we can break it down, like who would be a, a, person that would want a 508 structure and then who would be the person that would want a PMA private membership? Can every business owner turn their business into a PMA? And what's the difference between the two? Um, for us at 
the Haven Earth, you know, the way that you kind of consulted and the, the one piece that really stuck out for me that you said when I was, we were talking about, you know, everybody thinks they should get a 501c3, right? Nonprofit. And just like what you said with the educational system, there was an intentional change in uh, education when the 501c3s came out, I think you said in the 50s, and people didn't right. don't even know if 508 exists. And the, the churches are 501c3s are charities, not churches. And that right. really speaks to what's happening right now in the world when people are saying, why aren't the churches standing up to the tyranny? Well, it's because of the way their businesses are set up or their, their structures set up. Exactly. Okay. First off, you got to realize a corporation is a creature of the state. You cannot create a corporation on your own authority. You have to petition the Secretary of State to do that on your behalf. If you could create one on your own authority, it would be a private association. Okay, since the corporations are creatures of the state, if you want to follow a maxim of law, but um, the, the state will always have the ability to govern their own creation. But, um, you may be running that, uh, that corporation, but the state actually created it. But, um, on your request. So every one of our, um, for a long time now, um, the church leaders for decades, actually, um, the church leaders have been taught that they need to incorporate the churches and they need to become 501c3 entities. So when all of the mess started in, um, in March of 2020, um, churches were being told they had to close down or uh, put whatever other restrictions in place, depending on where they were at. Um, people started asking, well, wait a minute, what about the separation of church and state? And a lot of our church leaders had to start going back to their own congregations and telling them, we voluntarily gave up those separations of church and state when we became incorporated and became 501c3 entities. Okay, the state gets the governance authority because it's a creature of the state. It's incorporated. Federal government gets governance authority because you become a 501c3 organization. In 1954, we saw the passage of the Johnson Amendment. For those who aren't already familiar with it, which I would hope most people are, um, Johnson was vice president when, uh, when Kennedy was shot. Okay, He stepped into the presidency. Prior to being vice president, um, he was a senator, and he's responsible for the Johnson Amendment, which went into place in 1954. Okay, the Johnson Amendment governs um, certain speech and activities of uh, the, the nonprofit charitable organizations. So as a result, the Johnson Amendment prohibits our churches from preaching about, teaching about, discussing, or becoming involved with um, certain topics, almost all political or related to law and government. There are topics you cannot discuss in um, in a church or they'll pull your 501c3 status. But, um, but the church leaders have been taught that they need to maintain that status so they primarily so that they have the, uh, the opportunity to receive donations and a tax-deductible status and they need to incorporate to invoke protections from liability and things like this. The, um, what they're not taught is they have the same ability as a 508C1A organization. They have the same protections as a 508C1A organization because they actually have 
the separation, the true separation of church and state that was always intended that most of our churches across the country have uh, voluntarily given up. They're not only exempt from um, the regulation, they're accepted out of the ability to impose that regulation because it's a true separation of church and state. If we go back to some of the specific wording from some of the court cases, the, the, the judges have actually compared it to um, to a state-run church, which is um, why the, the distinction was put in place by Thomas Jefferson in his letter to the Danbury Baptist to begin with. Now, when you start talking about the separation of church and state, you get a lot of people making the argument that um, it's never really been law, but um, it, was, it was just an accepted doctrine. I, I can't agree with that perspective but, um, because when Thomas Jefferson wrote that letter to the Danbury Baptist, he was president of the United States. But, um, and in my mind, you can't get any more um, solid on, on the doctrine than, um, than it being issued by the man who was president of the United States at the time. Um, most cases, people don't want to argue with argue law with Thomas Jefferson. Um, that's exactly why and some of our different founding documents, we use Thomas Jefferson's words specifically. When we're talking about playing together a 508 entity, whether it's a faith-based organization, a faith-based association, or um, a ministry or a church, we typically include the language that the organization is founded um, based on a, a belief and a reliance on your faith in nature and nature's God. That's the reason uh, the reason we include that language is because that's a quote from Thomas Jefferson. And most judges just don't want to argue law with Thomas Jefferson. But um, when you're talking about the faith-based structure, everybody's minds always jump to Christianity um, first. I happen to be Christian, so I don't see the conflict there. But you've got to keep in mind the definition of faith has nothing to do with religion. Okay, religion has everything to do with faith. The courts, the definition according to the courts of faith has always been a firmly or strongly held belief. There's no mention of religion in that definition. So if you're looking to establish a faith-based organization, you've got to determine where does your faith lie. But um, do you have a faith in God or do you have a faith in nature or do you have a faith in the universe? It doesn't matter where your faith lies. What matters is that your organization is based upon that faith. Now, once your organization is established, then you can start looking at invoking um, religious protections and religious freedoms. But um, technically, faith has nothing to do with religion, at least until after the organization is established. And the faith-based faith-based organizations have the um, the ability to invoke the protections of um, of the 508 entity and when you most people even after we have these conversations don't realize when we talk about a 501c3 or a 508c1a but um, those are just sections of law they're all sections of title 26 of the United States code okay they're also what governs the IRS activities. But um, with a 501c3, you have the, uh, the ability to be tax exempt. Now, you still have reporting requirements every year, 
but you're you've been determined by the IRS to um, to be tax exempt. You have to file the proper paperwork to be recognized as a 501c3 and be awarded but, um, that 501c3 status. When you're mm-hmm. talking about a 508 entity, you're not asking their permission, but um, you're informing them that you're operating um, as a 508c1a. 508c1a is a mandatory exception. It's not an exemption, but um, they don't get to determine whether or not you're exempt. It's a mandatory exception. You're simply accepted out of the authority but, um, to impose that regulation and taxation to begin with. When we start talking about this distinction, but um, I refer quite regularly to the wording that's in the Texas state constitution to try and simplify that understanding. But, um, now, this actually technically it applies to every state constitution, but in Texas, it's always been declared that everything within the Texas Bill of Rights is forever inviolate, and it's accepted out of the powers of general government. Now, that means that they don't even have the power to discuss altering, amending the wording of anything in our, our Bill of Rights. It's just accepted out of their power. Well, it's the same thing when you're invoking the protections of a 508, that um, you're not working under an exemption, you're working under an exception. It's just not within their power and authority. A lot of people are of the mindset that um, they're, uh, they should be paying their taxes for uh, um, the services government's providing, and um, they have no interest in getting out of uh, tax finding a legal loophole to get out of uh, of taxes. Now, first off, I want to make clear in my mind, if your whole purpose for forming a PMA is just to get out of taxes, but um, then you've already got the wrong mindset. But um, if you're operating a 508, that should be a, a benefit, not the reason for doing so in the first place. But um, but it's not a uh, it's not a legal loophole. It's a um, a legal and lawful exception that um, they just don't have the authority or the power that um, to interfere with and regulate but um, or to tax or impose taxation upon a 508 entity but um, I love that as a as, as, as a standard PMA but um, see everybody wants to take a general application and apply it to all associations and all faith-based organizations but um and that rule doesn't apply your pma could be structured as a 508 entity but it could also be structured as um a, a non-profit association a 501 association but um those are cases where you're working under a legal exception you um you're tax exempt but um so that's got to be kept in mind when you start having these discussions because everything that applies to a 508 doesn't necessarily apply to a standard tax exempt association. They do have the ability to make that determination, but um, whether you're tax exempt with uh, a standard PMA. These um, these rules only apply to the uh, the 508, where it's beyond their ability to impose that taxation. So yeah, I love the clarity between the religious and the faith, and then what you're breaking down as far as the exemption and exception. And so. What would be a circumstance where you would, like for us, you recommended doing the 508 and the PMA, which we did. 
Um, I know that when people are dealing and if people are looking at acquiring land, um, is that a particular way, a time where um, the 508 would be more relevant? If you're looking to acquire land on behalf of your ministry, your faith-based organization, you're invoking the, um, the protections of the 508, but um, it removes government's ability to um, impose that taxation in the first place. Okay, so when you're talking about um, property taxes and at a state level, but um, as a 508, you have the ability to uh, contact the state and tell them to remove that property from the public tax rolls. So there's no longer a public tax or property tax imposed upon those properties. That's a protection of the 508 because of the separation of church and state. That doesn't apply to all PMAs. Mm-hmm. Now, when we talk, we start talking about uh, um, which which types and structures of PMAs are going to work, but um, at, or be suited for uh, the protections of a 508 entity. Okay, but, um, there are some types of private associations. But, um, that naturally fall within a reliance uh, um, on your faith. The biggest protections historically um, in this country have been needed for those in the private healthcare industry, but um, uh, specifically the the natural healthcare, our homeopaths, our naturopathic doctors, uh, chiropractors, um, holistic healers. But um, there's there's a need to keep the FDA and the state medical boards out of their business. Okay, anything related to a reliance on nature or natural health, but um, can easily be construed as a uh, faith-based organization. You have that reliance upon your faith in nature. Um, the same thing applies when you're looking at uh, private education associations. But um, there are different forms of private education associations. But um, but your your teachings, your curriculum, the focus of your private education association can very easily be faith based. The same in the same manner as you see um, Christian schools. Now, let me clarify something there. Um, people automatically assume that a private school has the same protections of a private education association, and that's not the case. Private schools may be outside of some levels of governance, but, um, at least not as bad as public schools, but, um, but that doesn't mean that they're operating in the private domain. They're still operating in accordance with a business license issued by the county or the state, depending on where you're at. Um, they're still under the governance of, even though they have more flexibility and more freedom, they're still under the governance of the state regulation and the regulation of public law and compliance with uh, whatever mandates are put in place um, for curriculum or other matters, because they're still operating under permission of that license, whereas a private education association is not under uh, the governance of public law, but um, it's not operating in accordance with the license. Um, a co-op, a co-op generally has more freedom than even the uh, the licensed private schools. However, a co-op is still a uh, public domain structure. Corporation, LLC, foundation, co-ops, they're all, um, they're all public domain structures. 
if so you're looking that, to invoke the cooperative, when was the cooperative model set up? Was it around the same time? Like, how did that emerge? Because that was um, that I, would be similar to a membership yeah, association. Because so, you're saying the membership association started back, did you as far back as like the 1800s, and then we they started infiltrating with these 501c3s and the cooperatives because cooperative is a membership association right right and the only problem with the cooperative that um is that um they're they unknowingly keep themselves under the governance of uh of public law and that's why the uh terminology of a co-op but um, has been considered to be a uh, a public domain entity. But um, they're either operating a co-op without founding documents or without a charter or bylaws, um, which in itself is still unusual, but it happens. Most of them have some kind of uh, founding documents in place, but um, but they're still giving governance to public law. They have not taken that co-op into the protections of a private association or a private domain. When we're talking about the governance of public law, statutory compliant language within your documents, we're taught that within our standard contract language, we're supposed to give, there's supposed to be a clause that gives, gives governance to the laws of the state of whatever, laws of the state of Texas or the laws of the state of Connecticut. You can't have founding documents that are declaring that you're subject to the laws of the state and then come back later and say you're not subject to those laws. So if we include standard contract language, we're making our documents statutory compliant. But, um, and we're declaring within our founding documents that we are subject to that law. We need to keep learn to keep that statutory compliant language out of um, our founding documents and out of our associations. Hopefully, I've clarified that without yeah, confusing so, people. And so, would um, let's dive into who would be good if they have an existing business. Obviously, if you're starting a new business, but if you have an existing business, um, how would it be good to switch over to a PMA? Why would you do that? And um, is that is it an easy thing to do? Okay, any business can restructure in the private domain but not all businesses are going to benefit from it okay for example i've had um, owners of small businesses doing heating and air conditioning but um that have wanted to restructure in the private domain but um so far in every one of those cases i have recommended against it but um and that's only because it would make things too difficult for them to do business. They still can't get the Freon that they need for the air conditioners without, um, without a license. But, um, so there are, there are some uh, situations and scenarios where it's going to benefit you to keep your business private. Most cases, I mean, to keep your business public, but in most cases, it's going to benefit you to keep your business private. And sometimes it'll benefit you to maintain a public side and a private side. But, um, and you're the only one that can determine for yourself which structure is um, is best for you. So um, let's talk about that a, David, a, a little bit more. Yeah. And also, um, I know like the 
one of the things as far as having a PMA with Mike Renegade Ranch, I mean, that what can they come in and tell you you can and can't do? I mean, I was a cafe owner in the past. There's a lot of lists of things that we have to, um, when we're we're public, um, adhere to. And also the other thing that you had mentioned, and I don't know if this is the PMA or the 508, are they are they state by state or is it federal? Is this something that's international? We've got a lot of people tuning in from an international market. Is this specific to the US? And how do we um, work around those jurisdictions of when we're a public business? Okay, first, before I go into um, the, the discussion of state lines, but, um, Okay, we'll go into the discussion of state lines because I just lost my train of thought. That just completely <laughs> left my head. We'll come back. Oh, I, okay. I know. I know what what I was going to say, but um, the protections of the private domain and the private associations have a limit, but those limits are pretty extreme. So, but um, in using the wording of some of the older court decisions, but um, as long as you're in association is not engaged in activity that creates a clear and present danger of a substantial evil, then the state cannot get involved in the internal activities of your association. Okay, so the state does not have the ability to determine for themselves what they consider a a substantial evil. If they could just make that determination themselves, then they'd find a way to get into every association anyway. But um, there's a test that's been in place in the courts for over 150 years to determine that. And if you want to put it in simple terms, basically, but um, as long as your association is not engaged in activity that's causing an immediate threat of serious harm or death to somebody, then it's not a substantial evil. So I tell people regularly, don't engage in activity that follows the lead of Jim Jones, trying to get people to drink this great Kool-Aid, but, um, or entering into any other kind of suicide pact, and you'll you'll be fine. Um, the states and the courts know where those limits are, even if you don't know where those limits are anymore. And there are lines that they will not even attempt to cross but, um, unless they can rely upon uh, statutory compliant associations to um, to get involved with that business. Outside of a statutory compliant association, um, you're going to have to cross that threshold of a substantial evil, and it has to be a clear and present danger of a substantial evil but, um, before they can get involved according to law. Now, they won't tell you that. They'll tell you that they have the authority to uh, impose public law hoping that you're going to comply with it instead of standing up to them. And most of the people at the enforcement level on the streets don't know any more about these protections than you do. I spent, um, during that same time that I was studying law, I spent 18 years as a cop. Now, I knew we had private clubs but, um, that didn't hold liquor licenses. And we could not go into those clubs unless we were called. I didn't understand why at the time, but I knew that we had restrictions. Um, if I went to do a bar check as a, a police officer, um, any bar within our jurisdiction, I can go into that bar at any time that I want, day or night, whether they're open or closed. I can go anywhere within that bar, but um, their uh, offices or wherever. 
because they have a liquor license issued by the state. We call them permit holders checks. Well, as a young cop, I was told um, very early on, there are clubs that do not have liquor licenses. They're private clubs, and we do not have the authority to go in and do a bar check, but um, we do not have the authority to even enter onto their property unless we're called there or unless we have a warrant. But um, I didn't understand it at the time, but that was my first real exposure to uh, the private organizations and the um, the private clubs and the power of doing business without that uh, publicly issued license. Now, David, as I've been but, exposed um, to this a the, little bit more, what I, you know, there can you give some examples? Because there have been businesses, there are groups of people that have been using this business structure. You outlined a few of the the bigger ones, the banks and all of those, like the bar, the GOP, the DNC. But, but there's other businesses, um, golf clubs. I know that there's some, you know, I've gone to different places where you have to sign in as a member and, and it's, um, it's not that it hasn't, it just hasn't been well known. The private drinking clubs, um, private golf clubs, uh, cigar clubs, anywhere that requires uh, um, a, a membership has the ability to um, keep their business within um, their the privacy of their association, as long as their their founding documents are not statutory compliant. Now, when we were talking a, a minute ago about the businesses that um, may not benefit from moving to the private domain, um, that kind of leads to into a discussion about um, some of what's happening. We're seeing it in a lot of different areas across the country, but right now um, the biggest need is uh, is in, in California and a couple of the states that are trying to become more restrictive. We're seeing bar and restaurant owners that are still told they have to close down or some of them are allowed to open but um, with ridiculous requirements. But um, So we're seeing that a lot of the restaurant owners are now looking to restructure their restaurants as a private social club so they can invoke these same protections. Everybody that's coming in there um, becomes a member of the private social club. Okay, In Texas, we have 254 counties. 46 of those counties are designated as dry counties. Back when prohibition ended, the ability to um, restrict the sales of alcohol was pretty much passed from federal government down to the state levels. And then the states passed that on to their own individual counties to determine the dry counties. But, um, so if you go into, um, for example, uh, Brownwood, Texas is in a dry county. I can go into a, um, a steakhouse in Brownwood but, um, and the people around me may be sitting and drinking a, a beer with their steak dinner or a margarita with their fajitas or whatever. But, um, but I can't order, uh, I can't order an alcoholic beverage myself, but, um, I would have to become a member of their private drinking club before I could be served alcohol within the restaurants. And they want to go back to another firsthand account, but, um, about 25 years ago, roughly 25 years ago, but um, my mom used to manage a VFW club in Tennessee. But um, she was in a dry county in Tennessee. Once a week, she would have to go to the neighboring county to pick up a liquor order and bring it back to um, her club. 
And she called me one day and said, I don't understand why I have the only bar in the county that can sell alcohol. In every other bar in the county would sell you what they call setups. If you wanted to um, to drink in one of those bars, you had to buy their setups, but you had to bring your own alcohol to add to your, um, to your drinks. And um, she was confused as to why she had the only bar that could sell alcohol. Well, it was a VFW club. Now, technically, if the state had pushed it, they probably could have gotten some level of jurisdiction because it's still a, an incorporated entity, but um, even though they're operating without the requirements of a license. Um, but as far as I know, those um, those paths of intrusion were never uh, were, were never followed up on or never taken. But um, the uh, the city or county police, the city police departments or county sheriff could not come into her club whenever they wanted. The doors are locked. The only way you're going to get into the club is if you um, if you're a member. She has that private contractual obligation with her members, but um, and the state can't interfere with that. Um, as long as she's not crossing the threshold of a substantial evil, she can serve alcohol to any member that comes in um, into her club. And that's the same way a lot of these restaurants that are restructuring as private social clubs are starting to operate. Anybody yeah. that comes into that restaurant is going to become a member of the private social club but, um, so that yeah. they fall under under uh, a private domain relationship instead of a publicly governed relationship. Now, David, if we look at this historically, and there's an educational or a learning curve here, a teachable moment, because there are people that have been leveraging this PMA, Private Membership Association model. Um, what do we look at historically, the people that have known about this and the ones that haven't? Now, there's people of us that are getting educated, and, and so many of the things that we've been participating in, you know, yoga studios, co-op, you know, you sign in, you become a member, but haven't had the legal structure. We're talking about implementing putting it into the legal PMA entity to benefit in the way that many other groups have been benefiting from historically. Historically, the biggest need for these protections, I mean, we back since the days of prohibition being lifted, we've seen commonly seen what um, gentlemen's clubs, uh, cigar clubs, uh, golf clubs. But, but historically, the biggest need for these protections but, um, have, have been primarily with the natural health care fields. Okay, we're seeing, um, once again, we're seeing the FDA getting more aggressive with attacks on homeopathy, but um, trying to uh, restrict the availability of, um, of homeopathy. But that's where the biggest protections have always been needed historically. But um, it's we we see some other areas, but it's not as as prevalent. But you would but, agree um, that, that we, there were, there have been certain groups of people that have been using this model and leveraging it um, quite well. Um, where well, you want to start going back through history, but um, the our the civil rights movement in this country is the result of. Um, the efforts of, of, of a lot of people, a lot of different organizations. But when you start looking at, at the protections, but um, the private associations were most heavily litigated during the 50s and 60s and actually became a cornerstone of our civil rights movement in this country. At one point, the state of Alabama tried to order the NAACP to turn over their membership rosters to the state. Okay, mm. For obvious reasons, the NAACP didn't want the the state to know who their their members were 
The state courts told the NAACP, if you're going to be doing business in Alabama, you're going to have to comply with state statutes. Well, the Supreme Court didn't see it that way. The Supreme Court basically told the state of Alabama, you guys need to stay in your own lane here. You're exceeding your jurisdiction. You do not have the authority that, um, to interfere with the business or the activities of a private organization. You do not have the authority to demand their internal documents. But um, that's uh, it's it's their business. It's their business activity. They haven't crossed that threshold, so it's just not within your jurisdiction or authority uh, to make those demands. That set um, a, a precedent for everything that would come after that case that, um, when it concerned the uh, the civil rights movement, and they didn't intend for the civil rights movement to be based upon uh, the protections of the private domain and the private organizations and associations. But that's the, um, that's the way it, it played out. And we would have never had the success in this country that we saw with the implementation of the civil rights movement had it not been for uh, the private organization standing up and, and taking a stand and telling government um, stay out of our business. It's private business. Thank you for that. That that made a lot of sense. And so um, we're at the top of the hour. I want to give people how to get in touch with you, but also what would you say is the relevance of entrepreneurs and business owners at this particular time in history um, moving into this PMA model? Based on what you shared with the civil rights movement, I think that this is a time where um, we need to, we the people need to step up, stand up, and take back not just uh, the knowledge of it, but actually the, the infrastructure. Well, if we want to start having that discussion, then we have to go back to a generalized discussion of what we saw across the country in 2020. Okay, but um, January, February of 2020, um, I would still have been saying that um, requiring the people of this country to be locked down and only essential personnel being allowed to move through um, freely is not something we're ever going to see in this country. It wouldn't have surprised me coming from China, but at the time I didn't think that it was even a possibility that it could be accomplished in this country. And then we get to March of 2020 and we start seeing all of the lockdowns and the government overreach, government deciding for themselves that they have authority that they were never given. But, um, and at the time I saw this, okay, first, when I was a kid and went in the army, I took an oath to the constitution. Well, I took that same oath again at the police department. When I went into the national guard, every, um, every public office I've held, I've taken that oath. But um, so from the beginning, I saw it as an aggressive attack on our liberties. But um, I didn't see it as a public health concern. In my perspective, it was simply an attack on our um, on our liberties. And I thought this uh, this can't stand. I was surprised to find out very quickly the number of people that were willing to openly accept that attack because they thought it was for the um, the the benefit of the people, the common good, but um, and we can take that into a whole different discussion. But when I look back on it now, I see 2020 in my mind as one of the best things that could have ever happened to us. But um, because we had so many people that just 
either weren't aware of um, the overreach or just of the mindset that um, it was common business. It's within the state's power and authority to do it. Um, or they were on the fence that um, accepting of pretty much whatever government decides to do. And now those people are no longer on the fence. People, I hate to use the term waking up, but um, because it's, uh, I think it's been misapplied in several circles. But that's basically what, what 2020 caused. It caused people to start waking up and realizing that there's a government overreach here that it's not within their authority to do, and we do not have to allow it. But, um, so those are the people that are, are now willing to continue with this message among other messages and uh, um, encourage people to rely on law to stand up for themselves and their families and their own liberties and their own rights. But, um, so I, I can't see, I really have a hard time looking back and seeing 2020 um, as a, a totally negative experience. It's caused too many people to want to implement change and and regain the um, the ability to invoke their protections and freedoms that they didn't even that we've got to the point that they don't even know they have anymore. Yeah, I that's, mean, I that's I, why I, my my I message. Was, sorry, David. I was saying I thought I was fairly awake, but this is all new information. And had this not happened and gone down the way it did in 2020, um, we wouldn't be having this conversation. There's a, a, before we kind of close out, there's a cu couple questions as far as the existing like gyms and yoga studios and Costco that are memberships, but they're memberships, but they're not set up as a structure as a PMA, just like the co-op. Is that you've got um, when, when if you want to use examples like Costco or Sam's Club, but um, first off, you're talking about corporations. They might be structured, but um, to limit their dealings with their members, but their corporations um, and their founding documents were never intended to invoke the protections of the private domains. And then you start talking about uh, some of the private associations that have publicly come under, um, under attack, which considering the number of private associations out there, they're, they're very, very few, but, um, but um, those that, um, come under attack are typically statutory compliant associations. Um, there are a lot of people out here or several companies out here that will help you to draft founding documents. That doesn't mean that they're properly founded. But um, when, yeah, when that, I talk about properly founded, these are places that are charging what I consider to be extremely unreasonable prices to prepare founding document packages. And what the uh, the people are receiving are statutory compliant documents. I've I've had more than one chiropractor that's uh, paid over ten thousand wow. dollars for a founding document package, and what they got was a statutory compliant package. So I had to go back and redo their paperwork for them anyway. So, so I, and I can great segue, David, because um, you know a lot of people are learning a lot about sovereignty and constitutional law and freedom. Um, and people are, are, you know, wanting to learn how to do this themselves. For, for us um, with Haven Earth, we, we hired you to do our documents properly for the 508 and PMA. And for that reason that you just outlined, because it sounds like there are a lot of different things out there. So I would encourage people to go to your website, which I'll put up, getyourpma.com to get educated on what it is we're even talking about. 
But as far as the process of doing it, I would love to have you on for a second conversation to walk people through that process of what to do if you're you're starting a business or you have an existing business. Um, if people want to reach out to you, I'm putting in there how we can make that happen. But there, there is some caution. I think as we're navigating through this, people get really excited. And if they're not setting up their documents in the right way, like you just described, that could be problematic. Exactly. There are a lot of associations out there that um, are operating without these protections and they don't even know it yet. And unfortunately, they're probably not going to find out until they find out the hard way. But um, they're operating statutory compliant associations. The, the state has governing authority because their founding documents have already declared it. But, um, and most of them don't know what that means, but um, it was never explained to them when they were putting their PMAs together. But, um, and that's primarily because a lot of the people that are doing these documents don't understand the difference. I've taken calls from some of these companies that are preparing documents, but asking me to explain to them the difference between statutory compliant documents and non-compliant documents. Now, I teach. That's what I do. But, um, I, I don't charge anybody to learn that um, I, I teach. So I'm willing to teach them as well. But my uh, my first response was, if you don't know the difference between statutory compliant and non-compliant documents, then you've got no business drafting documents for somebody to begin with. Because now you have all these associations that think that they have these protections, but um, when their founding documents declare they don't have them. Yeah. So, David, I put in again your um, getyourpma.com, your new website. I know you're working on it. We'll put this video on. We'll do another one. Is Are you just taking people in the U.S.? Is this something that goes beyond U.S. Um, boundaries? How does that work? That's um, that's kind of a... I know we do okay. a lot of interviews with Dolores Cahill, and she's really involved from a European standpoint, but we do have an international audience, and it seems like uh, around the world, there's, you know, what is it that we need to do as, as the we, big picture? We do help with paperwork for the um, the associations in um, in other areas of the world, and we invoke protections from not only our our constitution and our state constitution, but also the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the UK's uh, Human Rights Act of 1998, um, the uh, Canadian Charter of Rights. We invoke these protections within our standard paperwork, but. Um, I'm, I'm still, I've never been as confident relying upon um, law from a, go, uh, a foreign government because, for example, in Australia, but um, they have a version of a Bill of Rights and Constitution. But, um, however, it's very, um, it's very limited, and their high court always has the authority to overturn what's what they consider their Bill of Rights. So. You have protections that you can invoke in different countries around the world. Most any country that's a signatory to uh, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which is pretty much any country you're going to find on the Internet anyway. If it's a country that's uh, small enough that they're not a signatory to the UDHR, then they're probably not given Internet access by their governments anyway. So, yeah. um Invoking those protections at an international level is important, especially if you're doing business online, because you don't always know who you're talking to on the other end of the computer. Our natural health care professionals may be talking to people from the UK or from Canada but um, and not even realize that initially. So we need to invoke those protections outside of 
of the U.S. as well. Well, we're at the top now, of the hour, David. The, go, oh, go ahead. Last thing. Um, I'll, I'll make this quick. Um, a very common question is what happens if we're um, if we're moving to another state? Okay. You got to keep in mind the state makes no difference. But, um, those uh, uh, invisible lines dividing the states that um, remain invisible and are pretty much non-existent for these purposes because you're not governed by state laws anyway. So that's for both valid, the and the 508 for both, correct? Yes, yes. You're not governed by public laws of, of any individual state. Therefore, um, the state you're operating in makes no difference at that point. But um, at least in the uh, in the U.S., all the states entered on um, on on equal footing, and they have the ability to regulate that commerce within their own states. But um, however, you're not operating in commerce; it's a matter of private contract. But the state laws don't determine that, um, your abilities or your restrictions anyway. So the state lines just kind of disappear. Well, you know, David, this has been incredibly informative, and I love your passion for educating and and your commitment to doing that. Thank you for everything that you've done for decades now. Um, I put up the website for anyone that wants to learn more. You can go to getyourpma.com or nope, nope, nope. Let me say that the right way. I put it in the comments the right way, but uh, get your PMA. Yeah, getyourpma.com. I thought there was a now in there, but that's more my opportunity now, right now. I want to encourage entrepreneurs out there to really look at this business model and we'll do another conversation. I, I really appreciate your time and your dedication to it was perfect timing for us to do this here on the real Independence Day, July 2nd, 2021. So it's such an honor and privilege to be with you, David, and to be working with you um, on this for my own businesses. And have this up. So thank you again for everyone for tuning in. And thank you, David, for your, your showing up and being here and sharing your wisdom with us. I really appreciate it. Uh, I'll look forward to... Uh, uh, future broadcast podcast what however we refer to them but um yeah. but um, i i also want to thank you for your involvement in this because you're you're playing a big part in in spreading the message whether the people take advantage of it or not it's something everybody needs to know they have the ability um to invoke so um thank you for continuing to spread the word and helping to educate the people well, thank you. It's it's my own process, you know, and I really want to thank Renette Sinem in Nevada City and Michael for Renegade Ranch for introducing us right. um, and paving the way. And that's what it is right now. We are we're the ones that are um, somebody's got to step up and lead the way. So I'm happy to be sharing my process on the journey. And I'm very excited that we're able to collaborate in this. So thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Thank you again, David. Have a great uh, Independence Day weekend, everyone. Thank you.